0: The Buddha once made the comment that nothing is as variegated as the mind. <laughs> and it's borne out by uh, the questions. <laughs> oh, it's really interesting. Joseph, remembering that any earthly pleasures have their saturation point and become boring recalling the Zen saying, it's better to travel well than arrive. I have difficulty thinking of Nibbana and wonder if one eventually would choose to hop back on the wheel. (laughs) In case that's causing you some anxiety. (laughs) I think a way of understanding it is in reflecting on the particular meaning of Nibbana as freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. So just imagine yourself, the mind actually free of greed. It doesn't seem likely that you would want to, well, I think I'll be greedy now. (laughs) Uh, I think it's time for a little anger. I don't think it's really something to be too concerned about. (laughs) The the purification of the mind that takes place on all its progressive levels leads to greater happiness, leads to greater peace. Um, I don't think there's really that impulse to hop back on the wheel of defilement. There were a whole list of questions about a related topic. (coughs) I'll read some of them. In this process of opening, awakening, connecting, how does one know when one has clearly reached understanding of what are defined in Buddhist teachings as levels of either mundane or higher knowledges, truths? There seems much subtlety along the way and just plain continuousness or ongoingness. How important is it to mark these stages as specific, almost like grades in school? It seems arbitrary and contradictory to the flow, movement, and emptiness of self and everything. Do people go through stages of insight in a linear fashion? Or is there a cycle of progression and regression, going through a stage, pulling back, etc.? Just how do stages of insight generally unfold? As a second request. You said that you can become a stream entrant and not be aware of it. Then how do you know it happened? (laughs) What are the signs? Exactly what negative mind states fall away in the first and second level of awakening? I need something to look forward to. (laughs) Could you discuss the stages of enlightenment? What factors in each? Are they developmental in that one comes always before two? Do they happen in one lifetime or over many? This is very puzzling. It is said that Buddha in his early lives postponed his enlightenment until reaching a high wisdom state required for Buddhahood. This does not seem possible because. It would seem that by mindfulness there is a natural progression towards awakening. That one cannot force, postpone or control the timing of enlightenment. It is a spontaneous unfolding of being awake. So. I think the question of how important are marking off the different stages in this particular path of development, in some way it's um, related to individual temperament. The conceptualizing of the stages has conceptualizing of them has nothing to do with the actual transformation of consciousness. And that it is an ongoing process of purification. In each moment of mindfulness, there is this transformation taking place. Whether we know what stage we're at, or whether we know the stages along the way, is irrelevant to the actual purification that's taking place. And so in a very fundamental way, I think it's most helpful if we can drop back into the process and surrender to the Dhamma. Some minds have a particularly analytic bend and actually gain clarity from a clear map or a clear model. Others don't. Other, great, other minds gain greater clarity from a poetic model or some other metaphor. It's interesting, in the different traditions, there are many metaphors for this path of awakening. You know, in Zen, you may be familiar with the ten ox-herding pictures. which show, at different stages, a man chasing an ox. They don't actually show a woman chasing an ox, but I think it's implied. Catching the ox, riding the ox, becoming one with the ox, disappearing with the ox. And it has to do with understanding the nature of the mind, capturing this mind, this wandering mind, understanding it, writing it, and realizing emptiness. In the Theravada tradition and a lot in the Tibetan tradition, which is very uh, analytic, the stages along the way are very clearly delineated And there are significant shifts of understanding and insight. If you find them helpful, then I think it's worth learning about them. If you find them a hindrance, I would study ox herding. In terms of what I mentioned the other time about it possibly experiencing stream entry and not realizing it, the power of the moment, or the intensity of that moment, depends on the relative strength of the five spiritual faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. They can be developed just to the point of opening to that understanding, or they can be developed to a much greater extent, in which case the experience is very powerful and noticeable. Someone asked the Buddha, what actually is the sign? And he replied that an unbroken adherence to sila, to morality, is one of the signs. That an unwavering confidence in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha is a sign. Now this question of the unbroken following of the precepts has been interpreted differently. There are, just mention the two extremes of teachers within the tradition interpreting what this means. Thangpulu Saito, who was one of the great monks of Burma, said that somebody who has reached this level is so strong in the precepts that if they were to... if being on eight precepts, they were to try to drink milk in the afternoon, the water from the milk would separate out. I would not be able to drink the milk. That's one view of, of how strong the commitment to the precepts is and its effect on actual, you know, actual events. At the other edge of how it's interpreted, it said that some of the precepts one actually cannot break. Like intentionally killing or intentionally stealing. that other of the precepts, even if one does break in a moment of heedlessness, there's the immediate knowledge that one has broken it. And so it's not and then then um, a re-establishment of the precept. So that it it's not done in a state of great delusion. However one experiences this or views it, it's clear that morality, this this living with non-harming, is an essential outcome and expression of this stage of awakening. In terms of the Buddha's enlightenment, again, the different traditions have different interpretations, and so it's really hard to know for sure. In the Theravada tradition, it's said that the vow to become a Buddha operates in such a way that one reaches to the stage of equanimity and the vow that one has taken actually prevents the opening to the unconditioned in order that the paramis have a chance to develop fully. In the Tibetan tradition, as far as I understand it, it's quite possible for somebody who has become an Arhant to go on and become a Buddha. In Theravada tradition, that doesn't jive. As I was learning about all this, it was a little confusing. And I saw the tendency of my mind to get attached to a view. What I suggest is taking refuge in what Sansanin, the Korean Zen Master, called don't know mind. Acknowledging what we don't actually know being that there are different views, different opinions, and from a place of respect, understanding that we don't yet know. That has become a very open place in the mind. And it just allows for the many possibilities. Sharon mentioned last night that When we become mindful and realize our essential interconnectedness and wholeness, it's like returning home. We've been there before. When? (laughs) This is another related question. How can we go about answering the question, what is the meaning of life? I think what Sharon meant in that experience or the sense or feeling of coming home is when the mind makes the shift of emphasis from awareness of content to awareness of process. Because the content of our minds are all quite individual, quite conditioned in our own particular ways. Mostly in our lives, we're very caught up in the content. You know, the story, the particular thoughts, the particular emotions, particular images we have of ourselves, of other people, of our situation. But what happens naturally in the course of practice, as we observe each of these contents, moment after moment, and we observe carefully how they behave, that is, we're really watching to see what happens to a thought what happens to a sensation, what happens to an emotion, slowly the mind begins to make this shift to the awareness of the process of change itself. From that perspective, what it is that's changing becomes much less important. Because we're seeing, we're feeling, we're experiencing from the inside, deeply, this momentariness of phenomena. And that is that feeling of coming home, dropping out of the concept content level. It's related to the feeling of interconnectedness because just as the content is individually conditioned, the process is a universal process. When we drop back into this flow of arising and passing of phenomena, that is the experience of all beings, of all, of all experience in the world. And so it creates a sense of oneness, of interconnectedness. When we understand this in ourselves, we understand the process in everybody. This is a second attempt for this question, and it is, and as it really wasn't addressed in the talk on cosmology, I will try again. What does Buddhism have to say about the evolution of the species in terms of mental and physical progression from animal to human form? It seems there is a clear distinction between the two, between the two planes of existence in Buddhism. What does Buddhism have to say about the plant world? Do they possess consciousness? Can they feel pain? Is there rebirth? I haven't come across anything in the teachings specifically addressing the theory of evolution or not. It fits very well into the Buddhist view of things. What's considered more important is not the evolution of the species, which has, seems to have a fair basis in scientific fact. What's considered more important is each person's individual evolution. And unlike the evolution of the species, the individual evolution seems to be a two-way street. You know that depending on the particular development of the mind, it's going either towards human births or higher births or towards lower births. According to the teachings, there is a distinction made between plant life and animal life. In The sense that animal life is considered to have consciousness and plant life is not. This doesn't mean that plant life is insensitive because it is alive. And so the various experiments that have been done showing the responsiveness of plants to different environments, I think is a sign of the living quality of plants, not necessarily a sign of its consciousness. So according to this understanding, plants would not be involved in this cycle of rebirth, Next few questions cover an interesting range of intensity. How does Buddhist psychology explain what we call mental illness, where people are either all or some of the time suffering from what appears to be severe thought disorders and may do irrational things when in these states? For example, unknowingly putting their own lives at risk, as a friend of mine has done. I'd really like to understand what is happening in the mind at these times, to know how best to be around people when they are like this. In this practice of playing the edge, do people ever go over the edge? I feel very drawn to discussion, but I easily get emotional. On the one hand, I see clearly that my position often just... It's amazing, just Uh, the process of aging. (laughs) (laughs) On the one hand, I see clearly that my positions often just serve the purpose to give me a sense of identity. Also, the anger behind them is just creating defensiveness and is causing much pain to me. On the other hand, I feel that it's very important to speak out if there are good reasons and arguments to use one's own independent thinking. Also, the Buddha advised to do so. This example in the Kalama Sutta. I have a great need to develop more balance in my communications and to make them an integrated path of practice. Special advice for a hard case. There's one last question on this spectrum. Question, yogi mind. We've heard about it. We've experienced it. Learning to recognize and work with it seems an important part of practice. Could you describe with some precision and detail what is actually happening in yogi mind states? If we can clearly see the step by step mental process, perhaps then we can more quickly recognize it and disidentify. Is yogi mind really only one type of phenomena? Or there are there actually quite different mental processes being lumped together under the term yogi mind? And all of these questions I think revolve around one essential process of mind, and that is the process of identification. When the mind is compulsively addicted, compulsively identified with particular thoughts or feelings, it can actually lead to Quite severe mental disorder. And in those times, there is little or no mindfulness. There is no ability to disidentify. And so, the mind is not afforded the great protection of mindfulness. It's as if the mind is swept up into a vortex, often moving very quickly of a thinking emotional process and there is no place of balance, there is no place of rest in that. On an extreme edge, it happens in mental illness. It can happen in our communication, where we get so identified with a point of view That it leads to anger, it leads to defensiveness, it leads to aggression in the communication. Not because of the content of what we're saying, but of our relationship to the content. That is, there's very little mindfulness at that time, there's such strong attachment and identification that it creates this polarity. And it leads to this yogi mind phenomena. Quite a few years ago, I was doing a self retreat up in the room where I do interviews in 101. And I was in the room for about a month. One day, I'm sitting there and I start hearing these conversations coming through the pipes. I start listening, <laughs> and my mind had this impression that there were conversations going on in the kitchen which somehow were traveling through the pipes and I was hearing them. And this went on for days. And the conversations were of such a nature that a couple, a friend of mine, that the husband had killed the wife and nobody wanted to tell me because they didn't want to disturb my practice. (laughs) And that another friend was dying of cancer and they didn't want to tell me. And I, day after day these conversations are going on and on in the pipes. <laughs> it got so bad that I actually had to go down and ask well, what's going on? Why isn't anybody telling me anything? <laughs> it was so real. That's yogi mind. <laughs> Just this intense identification with and the mind not able to let go. Steve just told me a wonderful yogi mind story when he and Michelle were teaching in Australia. The place, the room that he was staying in, it was a room with two doors coming from different directions. And one door was off a bigger hall where the yogis would often walk. One evening as he was... Um, after the talk and getting ready for bed Michelle came in um, and Steve said to her why did you come in that door? So I guess it was not how, how she usually came in. Just at that time a yogi had entered this room that had been used for walking and heard Steve say why did you enter that door? This was about 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> At four in the morning, this yogi comes into Steve's room, (laughs) wakes him up, and said, "Why did you ask me which?" (laughs)
1: That
0: all night long the mind had been obsessing (laughs) with why he had come in that door. So how to recognize yogi mind? (laughs) Whenever you cannot let go of a thought or an emotion where it's really stuck and intense, it's yogi mind. Another retreat I was doing, I I was also sitting in my room and somebody was bringing my my meals to the room. And one day I was coming in from doing some walking meditation outside, past the library where a staff meeting was going on, and I just heard a fragment of a sentence that said Joseph's food tray. (laughs) I had hours of paranoia. (laughs) They don't want to be bringing me my food. (laughs) I ought to go down. (laughs) It's really important to begin to recognize this phenomena. Because usually yogi minds, it may take hours, it may take days, but finally we kind of come out of it. But it really is not so different than mental illness. (laughs) You know, where we're just so caught, so stuck. Okay. (laughs) Michelle said that once when Deepa Ma was asked what was in her mind, she replied, concentration, loving kindness, and peace. That is all. What is the place of mindfulness in this? Deepa Mars response and her whole life really has to do with the most beautiful integration of different kinds of practice. Really in this statement of Deepa Mars, you can see the integration at work. The peace is the peace that comes from the uprooting of defilements. The uprooting of defilements comes from mindfulness. She often used the loving-kindness practice to develop the deep states of concentration using the deep concentration then to develop insight and wisdom through the power of mindfulness. And so everything fed into one another. The metta fed into the insight. The insight then become, became a basis for the freedom of defilements, which allowed the mind to become more concentrated, which made the power of the metta even stronger. And so it's just beautiful to see how everything flowed into everything else. Mindfulness was at the key, the center of the key of all of that. Um. How would you suggest dealing with the situation where you felt that a teacher, not someone you see in interviews, had said something in a talk that seemed quite unskillful? Is there any mechanism for dealing with such concerns? I think first what I would do is to see if it's yogi mind or not. Just kind of sit with it for a bit. If... You, know, you see that it's not just the mind latching on to something, but there really is a question of concern for you. It's fine to leave a note and arrange your time to speak with whoever it is. It would be helpful both for the teacher and in terms of clarifying your own understanding. So that's certainly a possibility. Last time you said Munindra gave someone a particular meditation because he was the stupid type. Could you tell me what that meditation was? (laughs) I think I need it. (laughs) Actually, we're all doing it. (laughs) Because he talked about Anapana, the awareness of breathing as being... He described it as being useful actually for all types, uh, but it's particularly useful for the stupid type. (laughs) Uh, One of the beauties of working with the breath is that it's so straightforward. So it's not some elaborate system that we have to develop. It's a process that's natural, that's always there. One of its powers and uh, is that unlike many other objects, the longer we observe the breath, the more subtle and refined it becomes. And some of you may have had the experience, you know, of watching the breath and it just becoming almost imperceptible. It doesn't mean that we're not breathing. It means that the process has just become so refined and so subtle. At that time, rather than try to force the breath to make it stronger, see if it's possible to draw the mind down to that level of subtlety. And so it's actually a very fine way of training the perception in increased refinement. There are times when we really can't feel the breath at all. At that time, rather than search for it, it's better to go to a different object. Either sitting touching, um, you know, or the, the use of various touch points in the body, until the breath begins to um, appear again. Since we are all interconnected, all the pains in the world must have an immediate effect on us, irrespective of whether we know about them or not. That would explain the hidden despair and rage that most people feel nowadays. Doesn't it follow that on the path to liberation there must be a conscious opening to that general suffering in us, rather than just to our personal pains? How can we do it best? the expression of it would be a flow of compassion which would also dissolve the deep-seated despair and rage. I think there are some interesting points in that question. One is the opening in our practice at first to our own particular pain. You know, whether it's the physical pain or emotional pain you know, of our own particular story But as we work through that, we really open to a much more universal dukkha, which we can experience in two ways. We can experience it in terms of understanding the vulnerability or the potential for suffering in this mind and body because we have seen it in ourselves. You know, we see what this body is liable to. I was just reflecting for a moment. I, I don't know that you noticed that last night I had some guests come in for the talk two of them was old high school history teacher of mine it was actually quite inspiring to me in high school and very encouraging for my uh, questing mind and his wife and his wife has been battling with a uh, very severe kind of cancer uh, and is in quite a difficult place she actually has uh, a hole in her cheek that goes through to the jaw and uh, it's just an amazing amazingly um, painful and difficult uh, degeneration of the body and watching them together it's so beautiful because they have such a loving relationship you know and even through all the, the dukkha of of this process um, he's just taking care of her in the most beautiful way. Um, And it just, again, was a reminder of what Sharon was talking about last night, of how some many aspects of this process of life and aging and disease and death are just beyond what we can control. It's just happening. And to feel in different ways the potential that is there. For most of us at this time, we're in relatively good health and strength, but that's a very tenuous situation. And at some point, we will all be facing the breakdown of the body in one way or another. It was just—it was a wonderful reminder to me to see both the the truth of that dukkha and also the possibility of love in that situation. And so we open, we open to our own particular pain, but I think in the process we become very sensitive just to the universal quality, the universal aspect of dukkha. And we also open not only to the suffering of situations like that, but just the dukkha of the process itself, which is very universal. When we see that, when there's an opening to that in our practice, the despair and rage that we might have felt previously really does become transformed because instead of the mind relating to particular actions which cause suffering, what do we have despair about or what do we have rage about? It's often about specific actions. Rather than rather than the nature of the process itself or seeing that what causes harmful actions or what causes you know, actions of suffering are forces that are within our own mind. We see the hatred, we see the anger, we see the fear, we see the paranoia it's all within us, it's in the mind. And as we see it and understand it, we also see the way to free the mind from those forces. And so when we experience it in the world outside of ourselves, we have that wisdom, we have that understanding, rage at suffering in the world is just contributing more suffering. It's not understanding the underlying causes and the way to uproot those underlying causes. And that is the great power behind compassion, which is wisdom. Compassion without the wisdom to see the means to alleviate suffering, the compassion by itself is not very effective. Those two factors have to work together. What is the relationship between ego in the psychoanalytic sense and self? What happens to the ego at the various stages of enlightenment? What happens to personality as one becomes enlightened? This often causes a lot of confusion because in the psychological sense, there's often a great emphasis on strengthening the sense of self, strong self, strong ego. It's it's considered a sign of health, of psychological health. Yet in the Buddhist view, it's what we want to uproot, this idea of self. It's really using the words in two different ways. In the psychological usage really refers not to a thing in itself, which is the self or the ego, but rather a certain balance of mind. And so when we use self or ego strength psychologically, it means balance. When we use it in the Buddhist terminology, it doesn't mean that, it means An idea or a concept of some unchanging something, which we think is there. You know, at a certain point in practice, it's even hard to imagine what that word could possibly refer to. So sometimes it's hard to find the right, uh, the right noun. Now we begin to see so deeply that everything in the mind and the body is a changing process. And that there is no thing to which experience belongs, or to whom experience belongs. There's nothing behind the process. That's the meaning, in the Buddhist sense, of selflessness. This is not in contradiction to the balance of mind, which in the psychological sense is called self. Personality pretty much stays, as far as I can tell, through the path. There's one story of a group of arhants in the Buddha's time walking through the woods and they came to a stream. And all the monks walked very decorously, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, with great decorum through the stream. And one monk kind of hiked up his robes, took a running leap (laughs) and jumped over the stream. And the monks sort of went to the Buddha and said they complained about this guy, who was also supposedly fully enlightened. And the Buddha just smiled and said, "That monk had been a monkey for five hundred lifetimes,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and it was just his personality." <laughs> so we—that's the Buddhist theory of evolution. <laughs> <laughs> okay, dear Joseph, you still get your chance. I still don't know what a world system is. <laughs> I think Sharon's talk in her, in her talk on the cosmology described the different planes of existence of the lower realms and human realms and heaven realms of sense pleasure, and in the Brahma realms, there are 31 planes of existence. 31 or 32? (laughs) One of them. And each one of these sets of 31 planes is called a world system. The Buddha said there are an infinite number of world systems. And so, you just can get a sense of the immensity of what is going on. My next talk, I can get it together, I want to talk about the cycles which keep the immensity of this samsara going around and around. That it's actually a lawful process of how they're created and how the process continues to unfold. Uh, and just when we consider the, the vastness of it all, and to see that what we're doing here is actually walking on a path which frees the mind from attachment to this cycle of rebirth through all these planes of existence, through all of these different world systems. And this is an amazing process that's going on. And it's said, you know, according to the Buddhist teachings, of how rare it is. We're in a we're in a time in a time frame, a rather large one, in which Buddhas appear from time to time. And it said that in this cycle, this last Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, was the fourth of a series of five Buddhas. Maitreya, who is the coming Buddha, is said to be the last. And then it said that there is a vast amount of time in which no Buddhas appear. And so it just becomes so powerful, kind of the understanding and the preciousness, kind of hearing the Dharma and being able to practice it, to really develop those paramis in ourselves, which carry us you know, in a direction through all these planes of existence, through the different world systems, they become our real treasure. And I know from sitting to walking how easy it is just to forget the the power of what's being accomplished. Um. How does sudden death, an auto or war or suicide, affect the reincarnation theory? How, what attitude do Buddhists take towards suicide and euthanasia? Uh, it's said that in the moment of death, no matter how sudden it is, the mind um, goes through a certain process. Um, in which the, the different forms of karma that I think somebody talked about, uh, which operate at the time of death, you know, can happen. And I've had several friends describe situations of near death and describe the sensation of things slowing down tremendously, kind of reliving life experiences. Um, and so what appears to us perhaps to be sudden or quick, in the scope of 17 trillion mind moments a second, there's plenty of time for that process to happen. Buddhists generally don't think suicide or euthanasia is a good idea. Because for the most part they're rooted in aversion, rooted in aversion towards what's happening. And there is a great appreciation and respect for the power of the moment of death. That is a very critical time because in many ways it can condition the rebirth consciousness. And so to do something at that time or near death, which is rooted in an aversion strong enough To actually take life, which is not a weak feeling. That's not a weak impulse. It's a very strong impulse conditioned by aversion. It's not a wholesome or healthy quality at any time, but particularly at the time of death when it's so crucial to have a mind at peace. So it's not a good idea. I don't, uh, so could,
1: uh, 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 uh,
0: uh, 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 yeah. In yeah I don't think that was I, I don't know exactly what what uh, measures were taken to, or are being taken to sustain his life, but I don't think it has to do with uh, the fact that if they weren't it would be a form of euthanasia because uh Now, in the situation of Mahasi Sayadaw, he also, I don't know, there was a stroke or something just just before his death. They took him to the hospital, also where they had hooked him up to life support machines. And the decision was to actually take him out of the hospital and just to let nature take its course.
1: Uh,
0: And so I think that that really is seen as being uh, fine and quite different than an intentional act of killing. Last night, Sharon talked about how practice can increase our sense of connection. I see one pitfall of is doing the opposite, keeping us separate and unconnected. Could you talk about your experiences with this and how we might avoid it? The sense of connectedness or disconnectedness does not have very much to do with the particular form of relationship between people. That is, connectedness does not necessarily have to mean people talking to one another or touching one another or relating in a particular way. On a deeper level, what creates disconnectedness is a strong sense of separate self. Because as long as there is that strong sense of separate identity, of necessity, everything outside of what we call self is separate and disconnected. And so the real connection happens to the degree that we understand the selfless nature of it all. And from that understanding, there is automatic connectedness. There's no particular form that is needed because there is no separation. There's no one to be separate. Some weeks ago, I think I mentioned uh, this writer, Wei Wu Wei, who, who... wrote about the dog barking up the tree that wasn't there. He had another another little aphorism. He said, true humility is the absence of anyone to be proud. It's not a stance. It's not some way we are. It is the absence of a sense of self. And that is really the true humility. That's where the true connection is. And so to the degree that in the work we're doing, it's to free the mind from this attachment to a sense of self, to see through that illusion, to see that that is a concept which we have created through a process of identification. As we open to that selflessness, the feeling of connectedness is very strong. And I think you will experience that as... And most of you are old yogis and you know this from past retreats. The strong feeling that comes about at the end of a retreat with people that you've been sitting in silence with is a very strong connection. Okay, maybe one last question. so many that are quite good. I think I may be the world's ultimate hedonist. My increasing equanimity, joy, loving kindness, and compassion... The faster passingness of negative mind states and the development of more and more pleasurable body sensations in my life outside of retreat all feel really good and have become rewards and partly my goals of retreat practice. Is there such a thing as practicing for the wrong reasons? And what are the karmic consequences? Do you know Max the Pig story? It's an important question and I think we've touched about it, touched on it at different times, how the experience of different pleasurable states, meditative states, and ease of body and ease of mind, um, which can happen in the development of the practice, also can become a subtle hindrance attachment to meditative states. And it takes a lot of mindfulness of those states so that we're not lost in them, we're not identified, so that we're clearly seeing the three characteristics in those states as well. The impermanence and the unsatisfying nature and the selflessness of the joy, of the peace, of the lightness. Some years ago, in one of my travels, I saw this uh, little carpet. It was just like a little sitting carpet of a Persian design. And just when I saw it, was like one of these immediate attractions. I just loved it, so I got it. I just loved it. It was so beautiful to me. And I liked the colors and I liked the design. And there was really quite a strong attachment. And then one day after I had it for quite a while, I was looking very carefully. It was a very intricate design. I was looking at the design, and I saw that one whole piece of it was totally off. And people, I had mentioned this story before, and some got many notes saying, well, in Persian carpets they always put in a little imperfection. This guy got drunk. <laughs> this is not just a little imperfection. <laughs> but I hadn't noticed it, you know, for a long time. But what was so interesting to me, in the moment of seeing it, it's like all of the attachment I had to this car dissolved immediately. I mean, it's just from seeing what I perceived as the fault in it, as the flaw in it, I still enjoyed sitting on it, it was fine having it. But the force of the attachment was gone completely. Seeing the three characteristics in all experience functions in that way. And so when you're having good feelings, which comes at times in the practice, Be watchful that you're really bringing the eye of wisdom to them, that it's not simply kind of a dropping in and enjoying, although there is nothing, it's not that one should avoid them, think they shouldn't happen, but to really see them with wisdom, which means seeing the essentially empty, impermanent, unsatisfying nature. And in that way, We can experience the joy and the peace and the stillness and the compassion without the force of attachment. And in that way they don't become a hindrance for us.